to vote to leave still felt like a vote for Farage and still felt like a vote for racism and xenophobia. So it was really difficult to stomach a leave vote, even though I had my doubts about whether Remain was the right choice. Fidel Kaboom was absolutely amazing. That particular episode on the job guarantee that he did is being shared so much. I've even sent it to members of parliament here for them to learn more about the job guarantee. I hope they're listening to it because it's great. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, friends, welcome. It's Steve Grumbine with Real Progressives. Going across the pond over to the UK, where I will be bringing on my friend, Patricia Pino. You all have seen her writing in the Pileus. She's been on the show before. We're going to be talking all about Brexit, the EU, and monetary sovereignty. So without further ado, let me bring on my guest, Patty Pino, welcome to the show. How are you? Not too bad. So one of the things that, you know, we, you, you've heard what we've done around here. So th this should come as no shock. You know, we, we talk modern monetary theory. You talk modern monetary theory. But in the EU, things are very, very different than in these sovereign, monetarily sovereign nations such as the UK and the US. Can you explain to us a little bit about what the EU and the Eurozone and all the different components of what that uh, block of states actually is made up of and what the rules and regs are a little bit? Give us an overview. Well, that's part of the problem that um, not many people really understand all the intricacies of how the EU works and how it's composed, etc. Um, I mean, whole books have been written on the subject. Uh, but uh, in, in very, very quick, simple terms, you have 28 nations with conformed to EU. And, with, and those 28 nations have some treaties about uh, a single market, trade, etc. Within those 28 nations, you also have a number of nations, I can't remember exactly how many, who are part of the Eurozone. And they have a, a different set of structure within the main EU structure, which works slightly different, but they also share some treaties. And then you have countries like Norway, which have uh, slightly different arrangements with the EU and some things apply to them and some things don't apply to them. So um, the UK, uh, for example, uh, we retained our currency. So we still use the pound and we retain we are not also we're not within the Schengen area, which is why people have to apply for a separate visa when they come to Britain. And so that makes a big difference because um, having kept control over our currency, it means that um, some things, for example, the EU 
uh, one of the um, regulations that is very much criticized and which is in the Maastricht Treaty is about uh, restricting the 3% deficit. And that's what we've been hearing a lot about in Italy, about Italy and Greece, etc. That applies as well to the UK. However, because the UK has its own currency, all the EU can basically do is ask politely that we put our deficit down and ask us for a plan as to how we're going to put a deficit down. But it's not as easy for them to enforce those rules in the UK as it is to enforce them in countries like Italy and Greece. So it is a, a big, complicated mess, and um, and a lot of the uh, instability and a lot of the uh, um, pain that is being caused at the moment in the UK is because not people are in disagreement as to what the treaties actually mean. Okay, so when we talk about Brexit, for example, uh-huh. you know there was a lot of talk about you know being racist, it being all about you know these hard right xenophobes and so forth, and I know that had a part of why people left. But there, there was a far greater rationale behind Brexit than just the knee-jerk identity politics that tends to be the pop narrative that goes around. Talk a little bit about why the UK left and, oh, and wow. what that was all about. Just, just because I don't think people really have a clue what that was about. They just heard somebody tell some story somewhere and they've repeated it and that's about the extent of it. I, I think, I think, yeah, people make the mistake of saying, oh, everybody who voted leave voted for this reason, and everybody who voted remain voted for this reason. Uh, when in fact, within those two groups, there is a quite, you know, a wide view, um, range of views, and there are left, left-wingers and right-wingers within both groups. Um, the issue is that even though in the left, there has always been um, uh, a tradition where you know, they've always, there's always been a part of the left which has been against the EU from its inception, including people like Tony Benn and, of course, Jeremy Corbyn. The Blairite part of the Labour Party and then the Liberal part of the Labour Party were all more pro-EU. The more recent parts of the Labour Party have been largely pro-EU. And they, um, I, I, believe, I mean, it's difficult to say what happened behind closed doors, but I think that at some point they persuaded Jeremy Corbyn to drop the EU uh, of his uh, agenda. Even I, people voted for him despite the fact that they knew he was against the EU, including myself. And, um, uh, but at some point he got persuaded to, uh, to drop that. And then you've got on the, uh, on the right of the spectrum, of course, you've got uh, the liberal right, uh, people like David Cameron, um, Osborne, etc., who were massively pro-EU. And then you have the xenophobic and the, uh, the, and the racist parts of the right wing, uh, what you would call populist parts of the right wing spectrum. And you have uh, people like Nigel Farage, who used, you know, who tried to divide society and use that as a means to, who always was campaigning on the, against the EU on the basis of primarily immigration. And uh, so you have those two camps. And the issue is that during the referendum campaign, the left was pretty much entirely absent from the media. The media did not pay attention to the debate that was going on in the left, even though it was happening, because I was involved in it, especially on social media. All they focused on was uh, Farage against, you know, the, the likes of David Cameron. So all they focused on was the debate that the two sections of the right were having. So it was all about the argument became simplified into it. You're either, you either hate immigrants and, and don't care about uh, 
the economics and, you know, will destroy the economics of the country in order to, to in your hatred of immigrants. Or, um, or you do what's sensible and, and, and follow, you know, and, and do what economists are telling you to do because, you know, economists know what they're talking about and, uh, and do the same thing and stay in the EU, etc. So it became polarized and it became an issue of identity. And I would be lying if I said that that didn't have an influence on my vote. Uh, even though I'm no stranger to the shortcomings of the EU, it still felt to vote to leave still felt like a vote pro Farage and still felt like a, a like a vote for uh, for racism and xenophobia. So it was really difficult to stomach a leave vote, even though I had my um, my doubts about whether Remain was the right choice. So a, a lot of people did that, and I think. Um, that's part of the reason it, it, it was such a shock when it happened, because to the country, to most of the country, to the liberal part of the country, especially to London, which is where I live, um, it represented the, the success of the far right. And, you know, the, the murder of the MP Joe Cox was, was the worst part of it during the uh, campaign. So when you, when you think to yourself about why you know, the, the narrative right now is largely simply trying to place all the onus on the bigotry, if you will, the xenophobia. It, it is, is the, the narrative that MMT presents that far outside the mainstream? Is it that far beyond people? I mean, I know Simon Ren Lewis has no interest whatsoever in it, but where in the world do they come up with the the economic narrative that brings up this three percent deficit? And where is it? It, it seems so far fetched that anybody with any reasonable understanding of economics would stand on this. Why? Why do you think? Is this just how pervasive neoliberalism is in this arena? I mean, it, it is that bad in the U.S. for sure, but it is changing. It seems like it is starting to change in the U.K. ever so slightly. Is that really, though, what it is? Is this neoliberalism? I mean, that, that 3% figure in the EU, which is the, the deficit uh, restriction, I think, as far as I know, it was plucked from thin air. It was somebody said, uh, 3%, you know, and, and, and that's how it's been ever since. No consideration was ever given to the needs of a nation or, you know, or the different economies because it was assumed that you know, the priority is to reduce your debt because that's neoliberalism. That, that's what neoliberalism tells you. And so I think people, most people who voted to remain in this country, um, most of them, not surprisingly, have spent most of their lives within the neoliberal era in which, you know, the last four decades. And most of them have been um, uh, grown up with this idea that free trade is good. You know, it's it's free. It must be good. And, you know, this this sense that anything that we do to eliminate borders or anything we do to um, to become more like that, you know, John Lennon ideal of no nationalities, etc., is is good. And the EU was sold to them as a means of integration, you know, and it was sold to a lot of people as a means of integration. And yeah, to, to some degree, it's, diffi it's difficult to disagree. Yeah, you know, all these things are good. Integration is good. Collaboration is good. Of, of course, you know, I, I, 
one of the aspects that really hurt me about the referendum was the fact by then the the European Space Agency had just had an incredible success um, with the uh, that satellite that landed in the comet. And to me, you know, that was achieved through collaboration of countries. And and right now, all we don't know what's going to happen to to the European Space Agency, but it seems like we're not going to be able to collaborate as well as we used to. But the issue is that what the powers that be told people that the EU was going to be about is not what it was ultimately about. I think um, they were sold this image of integration and collaboration when actually what they wanted to do was remove accountable power from, from governments. So in the, in the EU, you have this, um, this really interesting thing where in a country like Italy, you have uh, the uh, national government who supposedly control fiscal policy. And then you have the ECB and the European Commission who restrict or put certain rules which restricts the, uh, the laws of, of Italy. However, when things go wrong in Italy, we are expected to hold, it, you know, to hold the Italian government to account. But the Italian government is, is rightly pointing to the to the limitations that it has at European level. And then you have the situation where you don't know who is to blame. You don't have anybody who's fully accountable for anything. And that's a problem because it makes it very easy for outsiders or external um, influences to then, uh, to then dictate policy at, you know, at European level or, or influence policy at European level like we had with TTIP and uh, Greece. And at the same time, you know, this all happens behind the scenes and nobody really understands what the relationship is between the European Central Bank and, and, and national governments and, or the level of responsibility that each of them have over the well-being of a particular country. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. You know, I watch I watch your postings and you know some of the things that jump out at me, it's it's quite obvious that there's an incredible amount of baloney really just spread around amongst the economists, if you want to call them economists, I call them clerics or mystics. But th these folks out there that I see coming from the UK, there's no one actually preaching anything useful. There, there's no one when I read the stuff that gives me any real hope. Who amongst the thought leaders in the UK and the Eurozone uh, countries, et cetera, is, are there any economists out there that are speaking common sense or are they all wrapped up in the same nonsensical uh, charade that, 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 that seems to be the common narrative. Is there anyone fighting the narrative at all other than the MMTers? Uh, no. <laughs> That's the sad reality. And, and even, I mean, um, 
uh, Richard Murphy, for example, he's, he's become a, an MMT uh, and a very good one over time. And, and he's, uh, he's now, you know, one of the leading voices on it. But, uh, but he's still, as far as I know, he's still very much pro-Remain. And he doesn't challenge the narrative that's come from, you know, from the other orthodox economists saying that, oh, when the UK leaves, it's going to be Armageddon and everybody's going to die. And for example, one of the things that they've been saying is that as soon as the UK leaves, that's going to bring GDP down, presumably because, you know, exports will collapse and we won't be able to trade with anybody and therefore growth will fall. And that means that we'd be poorer. And therefore, we won't be able to raise taxes to have public services, and therefore, you know, the NHS will collapse, etc. And this narrative has been—I um, mean, it was quite prevalent. Um, uh, David Cameron and and Osborne um, often used it, but now we also see it from uh, from Lib Dems, uh, from Liberals, but also <laughs> within Labour of Blairites, etc. They they hold on to that narrative, and when you try. And when you try to say, well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to say that everything's going to be okay and rosy because that largely depends on our government. And unfortunately, we have a rubbish government at the moment. But um, there's nobody out there that says it's really up to us. And the only person actually that came close to saying that was actually Jeremy Corbyn in one of his speeches recently, where he said that you shouldn't believe the people that say it's going to be doom and gloom and you shouldn't believe the people that offer the promised land either. It's, it's going to be somewhere in between and it's really up to us. But there is really no, um, I mean, Steve Keen is a, is a, understands the issues with the EU and understands um, a lot of uh, what's going on. And yes, yes, he's vocal. Yes, he's vocal about it. I, I, I was going to be unfair. No, he's very vocal about it. Um, I wish he was more prominent uh, or he was, you know, in the media, in the, me- in the mainstream media talking more about it. But uh, he's one of the few voices that really does, you know, fight the other corner on that. Okay, very good. So we we had Steve Keen and Warren Mosler on here a few weeks back. Yeah. Um, kind of duking it out over trade and uh, the effects of trade on different countries and uh, debt that, you know, comes as a result of that. And then the central banking transfers of money uh, between, you know, trade partners, et cetera. And that was quite an interesting uh, discussion to say the very least. All right. So let's, let's look now a little bit at your current situation with the uh, publication you were with. It was the Pileus. I believe that there's been some changes coming up. Did you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, uh, we are undergoing a rebranding uh, of the Pileus. I think we want to make our team bigger and expand from what we were doing. So we, uh, we've got a name now called uh, Reckoner. We are still setting up the website and uh, still uh, we've got a Twitter account. Uh, so if anybody would like to follow that from now, it's, rec- uh, it's at Reckoner on Twitter, which is spelled R-E-K-N-R. Very good. And then uh, just to give you a heads up, we've got um, Stephanie Kelton, uh, a talk by Stephanie Kelton. I'm I'm very excited about it because I've never met her before, and it's like it's like meeting Justin Bieber. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's better than meeting Justin Bieber. But um, yeah, and uh, we've got uh, there's a group of us uh, called the the Gower Institute, 
uh, of Modern Mali Studies as well, who um, are setting up um, a website and it's going to be entirely educational, entirely uh, pro-job guarantee and trying to frame it from a UK perspective. Um, economists like Bill Mitchell to, to try and help us launch that in the UK and have a bit more, few more MMTs, have a bit more influence in the political sphere here. But things are moving forward, which is good. No, that is fantastic. All right, great. So let, let me ask you, you, you have a phenomenal podcast and I, Christian O'Reilly is Christian your Riley. Yeah. Tell, tell us about your podcast, how it got started, you know, what you've done so far, because honestly, I've listened to it and just amazing. You had Fidel Kaboob on, um, who, who is, uh, with us as well. I mean, this, this is just phenomenal, great content. Tell, tell, tell us about your, your podcast. Well, it was actually Christian's idea to have a podcast. I've, I'm not a much of a podcast person. Um, so uh, I, I kind of went along with him on it from the start. And then I really had a lot of fun doing uh, that interview that he asked me to do. And, uh, and so when we wanted to get more MMT going on, on the pillars and start something more, you know, that he's the first person I thought about, about... Um, you know, having a regular thing, a regular conversation with people and being able to just, uh, you know, his, I think his idea is, you know, somebody could be cooking dinner and, you know, listening, learning MMT at the same time or, you know, or going to work and, and learning MMT. And, and it was just a means to um, find a different way to, uh, to reach people because not everybody has the chance to read through, you know, pages and pages and pages, etc. And, um, so yeah, it, it, it paused a little bit for the last, uh, two or three weeks because of this rebranding thing. But, um, we've got, we've got a couple more episodes at least that we need to release pretty soon. And Fidel Kaboob was absolutely amazing in it. And that particular episode on the job guarantee that he did is being shared so much. And, and it, I, I've even sent it to members of parliament here for them to learn more about the job guarantee. I hope they're listening to it because it's great. That, that's fantastic. So let, let me let me ask you one final question. You have done writing, you have done video, you have now done podcasting. You're an engineer by trade, correct? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're just like wearing a thousand and one hats. Uh, yeah. One of the things that makes MMT to me the most powerful is that you know, regular people live life very scared. They're very easily put off by things that they don't understand. Modern monetary theory breaks down the things that we don't understand and helps us so that we do understand them. So we can make better choices. We can understand the world around us better. And it allows us to understand how much baloney is being pumped out. And MMT is not exactly engineering. You know what I mean? How did you um, end up learning MMT? I mean, well, it, as, it makes great. an awful lot of sense. It makes it makes a lot more sense than um, than any other version of economics, so to speak, that I've come across. And uh, as an engineer, I'm not. Um, I like things making sense, and I'm not. Um, I guess. I guess one thing I had going for me was that um, you know I'm not. I'm not a stranger to, okay, getting down with the equations and actually understanding from first principles something. That's part of my job. So I imagine, you know, to people who don't do that for a living, 
people who are don't do much um, technical stuff for a living that might you know they they might be a bit more rusty on that regard or might be a is asking more of them to sit down and actually look through through um through that in detail but um i think it helped me uh, uh, learn through the economics to do that but you know i read a lot of the stuff that other economists um orthodox economists do i read a, a model that simon ren lewis sent me <laughs> well sent uh, a few mmts and you know it just shocked it just shocked me it shocked me how um you know how can you get things wrong at such basic level how can somebody um how can people who have you know d degrees and phd's and who have positions of uh, influence and power within our government make such fundamental mistakes of you know not stating uh, assumptions not you know logic issues or or um or recurrent uh, equation issues and it's um is baffling and i know that if i showed that to any other to any of my colleagues or any other uh, physicists that i know they would react the same way so i, I think there are a lot of it's no surprising there are a lot of engineers a lot of uh, people from technical backgrounds software designers that have become mnts because of that same approach the uh, you know that that you get from from a technical uh, profession that's great I, I you know from from my perspective right I have an MBA, so yeah. it was really freaking hard for me to unlearn all the garbage that I did learn and, and then have to also get rid of all the conservative nonsense that had been pumped into my head for my whole life. So when I was hearing people talk about MMT, I was just like, what? What? Get out of here. <laughs> I was a gold bug. I was a, you know, the, what I call now a LOL Bertarian. You know, the, the whole gold bug nonsense and, and just kept talking about how it's going to collapse. It's this, it's that, blah, 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 blah. And, and here I am now looking back and I just, all I can think of is I've got to redeem the time. I've done so much damage in my life saying stupid things. Let's fix it. Let's fix it. And I think MMT is like the uh, magic pill. It's the cure all almost for, for mass idiocy that occurs both in the political sphere and uh, you know, the economic sphere. So in any event, I, I want to thank you uh, for joining us. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Thank you. <laughs> do, do, do me a solid, let everybody know one more time, the name of your podcast, the name of the new publication right. and where we can find you. Okay. So the podcast is called the MMT podcast. It's going to be uh, uh, sponsored by Reckoner soon. The uh, the website is going to be www.reckoner.com. That's R-E-K-N-R. -E uh, and the Twitter account is the same, at Reckoner. Uh, it's all been in the process of being set up at the moment. So uh, uh, just be patient there. And we'll have a much bigger group and hopefully much a lot more content and hopefully be funded properly. And... Um, and then we've got the uh, Stephanie Kelton coming on the 12th of June. Hopefully there'll be a video for you to share on that. And uh, the women from um, the, Gower in, um, the Gower Institute of Modern Money Studies who uh, have a great Facebook and Twitter page as well. Um, and the uh, handle for that is at GIMS, at G-I-M-M-S. So look out for that as well. So, yeah.
great. It's, we're building a big network. Yes, we are. That's awesome. And and you got your Reckoner folks in here commenting right now. So there's some more stuff. Okay. <laughs> awesome. It's going to be online in 24 hours. So <laughs> that's quite a bold statement. All right. So, Patty, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. I will talk to you very, very soon. We've got unfinished business. And I will talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We'll talk soon. Have a great night.